Welcome to the Fit for Tomorrow podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Sanders, physical therapist, and together I hope we can explore the best ways to stay fit, healthy, and active as busy adults. We all have a lot on our plate. So what is the most efficient way to exercise, eat, sleep, and train in order to continue to do the activities we love well into our future? I hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right, guys, today I'm excited to talk with Brent Brookbush of the Brookbush Institute. Um, Brent is a physical therapist, movement, manual therapy specialist. He runs a continuing education company that is entirely online. They provide certifications, uh, CEUs for different groups. And um, I'm really excited to talk to him today about a little bit of the online training and certification world, as well as kind of dive into some specialty topics regarding manual therapy, um, because you guys know how much I like hands-on stuff. So first of I all, say this, we had live education. We did. Oh, you did do live then, Yeah, and then COVID happened, and we switched to Zoom. So we still have live Zoom workshops. Those will start up again in February. Um, and we hope to go back to having live workshops. Now, we're an online education company with adjunctive live workshops. We're not a live education company with the opposite, right? But yeah. uh, we're mostly online. But, yeah, we do have live workshops. I mean, yeah. I love it. I love live education. It's just hard and impossible right now. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to dive into. What are the differences for you live and uh, live versus online? Because I teach for integrative dry needling, and, and we're the live company. And because of COVID, we're going to try to start dabbling into the online training. Um, what I mean, what are the differences you see? What are the advantages and disadvantages? Okay, so, I mean, education is obviously something I'm super passionate about. So if I get off on a rant, feel free to, to knock me down a little bit. Or at least slow me down. But okay, let's start with the live education. I started the Brookbush Institute because I wanted to solve certain problems in education. And it starts off with better delivery um, and me wanting to actually have good delivery of education. Because I think we have a lot of smart people in industry who frankly don't teach well. They don't understand lesson plan development. They don't understand communication science if we were to actually rate them on retention, comprehension, and application, education metrics, they would fail miserably. Doesn't mean they're not smart people or not great clinicians. That's not what I'm talking about. So of course we came in and we tried to deliver better. Well, that led to this online thing, right? And there's some advantages to online education. You can repeat things as often as you want or as much as you need, whether it's text or video, right? And then you start looking at some of the other stuff that we were able to do. And we were really, really early, right, in doing the Netflix-style SaaS model of education, right? So we all of our certifications and courses are included in a $19.99 a month membership. That just took the barrier of entry from a cost perspective to, like, next to nothing, right? Like, you got these people charging $800, $1,200, $2,000 for a certification. We're like, $19.99. And then that puts the onus on us, right, to, in order for us to be profitable, we need to keep you, right? But that puts the onus back on us to actually provide wonderful education, make you want to stay with us. And I think that's the direction education does need to go. And then take another step. So that's the affordability piece. We touched a little bit on the convenience piece, but you can add that convenience piece. You can go, we can do this on an app on your phone. So when you have a cancellation, Wow, you're in the Brookbush Institute website, you're knocking out credits, right? Because we're accredited, right? We, we, you, we, you can get CECs through us, that's fine. 
you know, we did, we also made sure that all of our courses were only one to four hours long so that you could knock out a course or the majority of course in a canceled appointment or a transportation thing, like you're on the subway or whatever, or a bus, you can get some stuff done, right? So it fits in. Like I'm always thinking about as a working professional, how do I make this convenient, right? And then the last piece, and this is where live education gets screwed, is access. It is very, very challenging to do live workshops everywhere, right? It's incredibly volatile. It's incredibly expensive. And in some communities, it's just not possible. You know, live education, you figure my instructors who have to be trained, who have to have education backgrounds themselves, who have to be great clinicians, need to get paid. They need to get flown somewhere. They need to stay in a hotel room. They probably need a certain percentage of their food paid for, right? We might have to get CEC approval in that particular state. You're already talking about thousands of dollars, yep. which means we have to charge whoever shows up quite a bit of money. And if we're talking small communities, like good luck having a live education seminar in Montana. I'm not saying the physical therapists out there don't deserve it, but it's very hard to get a group of physical therapists together in Montana in high enough numbers at a low enough cost of acquisition cost. I know I'm getting a little businessy, but in a low enough marketing cost to actually create a profitable workshop or at least a workshop that you're not losing a ton of money on. I would go to Montana if I could break even. I would because it's important to me, but I don't know that we could even make that happen. It would be like, I would have to like subsidize it. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, so I think that's where live education is having a hard time. It's just, it's the convenience factor. It's the access factor. Not to mention like leaving your kids for a weekend or, you know, people coming to the workshops, having to fly there or having to take the time off work. That's all a really big, big issue. Now the advantage to live education is the one-on-one -on -one interaction. And while we can do some of that via Zoom, when it gets to manual therapy, right? Like we, we, right before, right before COVID happened, we had like literally the weekend everything went into quarantine was our first scheduled integrated manual therapy workshop, which is the mandatory component of the only mandatory workshop in all of our certifications is this one manual therapy workshop for the integrated manual therapist certification and then COVID. So, um, we need to bring back the manual therapy workshop, but you guys can already see like the, the problems that come into teaching man live workshops. Like they're really volatile. Weather could have knocked that out too. I mean, that stuff just happens with live workshops. Yep. Um, you know, all of our workshops are live, right? We're teaching people how to, to do dry needling. So we, we absolutely want that one-on-one -on -one feedback and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and all of the, all of the things you're saying, you have to find a host and that host has, you have to be able to acquire enough people at that, that site. And, um, they got to be able to shut down their clinic and, you know, there's definitely yeah. a lot of factors that, that make in-person workshops a, a challenge. Um, what, when you look at evaluating somebody's, you know, like you were saying, Hey, we have to keep these people in our courses. We got to make sure they're, they're continuing to pay these monthly. When you evaluate your courses, what are the things people are looking for, um, uh, in an online course? Like, what makes, other than getting CEUs, what makes your content different than getting on YouTube and Googling a bunch of stuff, right? Because uh, 
certainly people need CEUs, but there's so much content now on uh, Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And um, why would somebody use your service over, you know, just kind of trying to find it on their own? Great question. Okay. So number one, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that we, we don't set the president that we like uh, manipulate people into staying on our site. I want people to stay with us because they want to stay with us, right? So you can cancel anytime. I don't, I don't want anybody to take the wrong, wrong thing there. And so the question you ask is a really good one for how we keep people as members long-term, which is how do you establish accuracy? How do you establish being trustworthy, right? right. So you know, there's a few few things that go on there that, that need to, to happen. Uh, first off, you know, everybody who contributes content to the Brookbush Institute site has a minimum of a master's degree. And if they're contributing to manual therapy content, they have to be licensed, right? So that's doctor of physical therapy, maybe at ATC, some chiropractors, right? So we start there. We make sure that we have credentialed professionals who, who know what they're talking about. The next step we took, which was huge, which I still believe we're the only education company to do this, is we decided we were going to build every course from a comprehensive review of all available original research. That's huge, right? Like, and it's very labor intensive, very time consuming. We're talking anywhere from 60 to 600 citations for a single course, right? Um, and we go through and as transparently as possible, lay out what's in all of those research studies and try to come to conclusions that you can follow as the reader. Okay, I see where the research is, all the research that's there. I see what the research says, and I see how, for example, if I'm the author, how Brent came to that conclusion, right? It's a very logical, reasonably objective thing. Now, maybe you have a slightly different interpretation, but at the very least, you're looking at it and going, that's reasonable, right? It's hard to get bias completely out. In fact, it's impossible to get bias completely out of any writing or communication, but at least we do our best to go, this isn't Brent's opinion. This isn't, oh, follow, oh, guru, Brooke Bush, right? Like, <laughs> this is the, the, the fact that the company was named after me is an accident, but um, that's a story for another day, right? We, we're doing our very best to go, okay, if we're looking at levels of evidence in a general sense, we know that research is kind of like the least likely to have bias and error, right? That's where we kind of have to go for our most, we, we have to put a lot of trust in that, right? That third party objective data that we hope hasn't been tampered with, but it's been reviewed by peers and published in journals. That's a pretty high bar to hit, right? So we start there and then we use our professional experience to kind of go, okay, how does this apply to practice? Let's, let's make sure we like think about this a little bit so that like people are actually getting some information from this that is useful and not just flat out statistics, which isn't. But I think that point of building everything on these comprehensive reviews of original research so that you guys know that you can trust our information to be as accurate as we possibly could be at the time. That doesn't mean it won't change in the future, but at least at the time we were as accurate as possible. You know, that's a big reason to come to our program. Now, you already mentioned the other part, right, which is the simple part of why you should pay for our program, which is we are accredited, right? So one of my goals early on was like, people should get credit for this stuff, 
and all of it. I want to create the content that people love and make sure that they get CECs for it. And why, why wouldn't the CEC stuff also count for certifications? Why are those two different things? Well, with us, they're not. You take a course, hopefully it's content you really enjoy, and you have some choice with us, right? So even our certifications allow you choice. It's about credits per content setter rather than any specific set of courses. Um, you take some stuff that you really like and you enjoy, and immediately that's approved for CECs, and it counts towards our certification. Boom, you've done those both at the same time. And if you give me enough time, I'm going to make it so that also counts as a master's degree all at the same time. Right? So you're going to be able to take credits and it's immediately going to count for CECs, one of our certifications and a master's degree program with us. And it'll still all be under $19.99 a month that you can do one hour at a time from your app on your phone. We're just going to, we're going to crush everything. That's, pretty, that's, that's, cool. that's a pretty sweet setup. Tell me about this master's degree thing, like an actual. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I can't tell you that much right now. <laughs> all, the, all I can tell you is this. We've been working at it for about a year and accreditation is a pain in the glutes. That is a fact. <laughs> um, you know, accreditation at that level comes down to a lot about like assessment strategies and uh, it just gets very technical. It, it's like this, it's, it's this two double-edged sword of like your content has to be good depending on the credential. Now NCCA for the fitness industry is absolute garbage and all they do is force a testing process that is not good. Um, but like when you look at the American Council of Education or um, DIAC, which is who we're using for some of the master's degree stuff, like they start talking about, okay, what's your content? How do you, do you develop that content, right? They're looking at process. What are your behavioral objectives? Do those match your assessment procedures? How do you test your assessments to make sure that they're valid? And then like take all that, which is complicated, and then add a bunch of bureaucratic bullshit around it, and you basically have accreditation. Then maybe you get there. Yeah, yeah. That, that's super interesting. Like I, I know a little bit from um, we developed a um, we call it our NRT course. It's you know involves cupping and instrument assisted massage, percussion massagers, and uh, I was involved in app, like applying for the continuing education credit for that. And you, it is it's a even for that it's a pain right just to get yeah. approval for CEUs for for physical therapists. Um, so I can't imagine actual college accreditation uh, for a degree. That's yeah, you realize like we're accredited for physical therapists in forty four states. Um, we're accredited for ATCs, massage therapists, chiropractors in thirty seven states. Like we've gone, we have something like twenty accreditations. We continuously keep on top of. Keep on top of. Now, do you also have strength and conditioning? Um, like, obviously, you work with rehab pros, but you, uh, I, was, I was just renewing my CSCS, and you guys do CEUs for strength and conditioning professionals as well, correct? Like, who's your target? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so personal trainers are a huge part of the audience. I actually started my career as a personal trainer. Um, and in fact, the Brookbush Institute website kind of started as like a corrective exercise thing. Mm -hmm. That's like what I was known for was corrective exercise. Yep. Um, yeah, we just, we, we have our own certified personal trainer certification. Um, we don't really have like a CSCS strength and conditioning thing. That is more or less what our personal training is. So personal training for us is, is strength and performance. And then we have the human movement specialist, which is like corrective or therapeutic exercise. And then we have the integrated manual therapist. And that's like our three, three branches. But yeah, man, we're all about strength and performance. To me, like human movement science is that bridge between orthopedic sports medicine all the way through fitness and then into athletic performance. Right. Uh, and, and I think the more people that, 
whether you're a personal trainer or a rehab pro, you're interacting with people on, on some level of that spectrum, right? And, and at any given day, it might be a different level. So the better your understanding of how to address the needs of that person at any level, I think is huge. Um, yeah, and it works. It really works. You know, again, like I'm, there's no bigger fan of, of my colleagues than me, right? Like I'm trying to help any way I can. And so when I look at this, the, the spectrum from, from personal trainer to licensed professional, right? I don't even make a differentiation just so we know. Physical therapist, ATC, chiropractor, I know we all have slightly different things in our scope, right? Like I can't dry needle in the state of New York, darn it. Um, but, and chiropractors can, but, um, ATCs can't do, um, high velocity manipulations, but I can, I mean, outside of those little stupid things, uh, ATC chiropractor, I don't care, right? Like what should be driving your intervention is the patient, not your profession. Like it, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like we have shoulder impingement. Well, what's the best way to treat shoulder impingement? I mean, start start with movement assessment. That would be the first thing, but we need to look at that patient and go, what's the best way to treat shoulder impingement syndrome or anterior shoulder pain, whatever you want to call it and not be thinking, well, as a chiropractor, I would, doesn't make any sense. That has no effect on outcomes, right? So you take that. Let's go back to the spectrum though. How many fitness professionals can I motivate all the way to this point? right? Because I think more fitness professionals would enjoy their careers more if they went all the way through ATC, DC, or PT, right? They added that. They got that security that comes from being a licensed professional and being part of the medical community. I also think that this side needs to come this way because there are, number one, our Therex classes, also known as corrective exercise, our Therex classes in school were laughably horrible. And I have never met a human being, never met a professional from the licensed professions who went, no, my therapeutic exercise class was awesome. I've never met that person ever, <laughs> right? So the corrective exercise piece is definitely helpful. And then you look at like, guys, we have to be able to strength train. Like having strength and muscle is like a suit of armor. You know, like I have pain. I go see a physical therapist. I have a friend of mine here in New York. I just saw for a few sessions. But the important thing to remember is like, I was having pain on the basketball court. I rarely, if ever have pain doing normal activity, right? And it's because like, what would it take to hurt me? Well, it takes a lot more when you're a lot stronger and you're a lot more physically conditioned and you're involved in more high intensity activity. You know, me and you both know the people who are really hard to treat are the ones who don't work out or are sedentary. And they're starting to have pain doing really low level activity, right? Like sitting is hurting. You get to this point where it's like, well, how do I even de-stress their tissues? What can I tell them to stop doing for a week to give me a chance to, to get some momentum? You can't. They're already having pain doing the most basic things, right? So to take these professionals and teach them some of the strength stuff down here to pull their patients up right? Like that's super important too. It's, it's all on one continuum. In my dream of dreams, this is a whole nother thing that I would have to tackle that would make accreditation look like the easy part, right? Is I would love to see an integrated profession. I would love to see ATCs, chiropractors, uh, physical therapists come together at the top end and create a profession, uh, doctorate of human movement or doctorate of movement rehab, whatever, something along those lines. 
And that fitness trainer, massage therapist, ATC would be uh, stepping stones along the way that you could exit and come back to at different times. Kind of like PTA with a transitional DPT, right? Like I would love to see us kind of create this continuum where you could go through school in a piecemeal fashion, very similar to the way we have credits set up on the Brookbush Institute. And like, as you got to certain levels, your scope would increase, which would give you a little bit more access to different patients or different jobs. And you could work your way, not in three backbreaking of the worst years of your life, quit your job, go $400,000 in debt, right? But like you could, you could do school for a year, part-time taking night classes, and then that would give you a new certificate to get you a little better job. You could take six months off and then go back and do another six months. And over a 10-year period, maybe in your 20s, you'd go from this to this without taking on all of the debt and the sacrifice that we've had to being physical therapists, right? Sorry, that was a rant. I told you guys I'm passionate about this stuff. So It's super interesting. I mean, when you look at the process, and I, and I feel very lucky in that. Like I coached youth sports before I became into the strength and conditioning field. And then I got into strength and conditioning and trained athletes. And then I got into PT school and I, I kind of went along that path. It was just kind of the way I tackled it. Um, but you could have come at that a million ways, right? You could have been a biology major that has never been in a weight room. And then you get the Therex that you're talking about as, as training. And, and it's a whole different beast. Quad so, sets, glute sets. And um, yeah, that's about all they teach you. <laughs> I mean, you could say, yeah, I tell people all the time, physical therapy school kind of prepared you for everything, but didn't really teach you how to, to fix anything, right? You're just kind of, you got the basics. Now go, go. To be PT schools, when I listen to them more often than not, it's like, here's how not to kill somebody. I, I and that's that. about as far as you get, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's, yep. you don't really teach you how to be particularly effective, just not a huge liability risk when you leave the door, when you leave the classroom, right? Like that's, that's about all you get, but. And it's so broad, right? Like the beauty in in the the curse of PT school is that you could do a million things when you leave. You could work with neuro or or whatever, but it does leave a lot in the middle that that you got to keep working on. And um, so now we're seeing all the fellowships and the residencies and. and Which I think it's a mistake. I think it's a total mistake. Why, Why do you say that? So you just asked, people like myself who had to put myself through school, right? I had to put myself through school. I worked, I went to school. I still came out with debt to get, if I wasn't running the Brookbush Institute, right? If I hadn't sacrificed that part of my life to build a company, I'm going to supposed to go out and get a job that's going to pay me 60 to 120,000. But what you're saying is no, don't do that after all of your sacrifice take 30 to $50,000 a year and eat crap for another year or two so that you can call yourself a resident. No, no, I'm sorry. Come up with better schooling, come up with a better path for students, come up with a way to get paid and make education convenient. That this idea of that, and it's horrible that like, so what are we going to do to make our profession better? Well, how much more can we make our students sacrifice? Like that has to die. And, and I'm not saying resident people who have already passed, who are fellows or have passed fam. I'm not, I'm not critiquing you personally. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the path for you should have been easier. That's what I'm saying. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I understand the point of it, right? We're, we're specializing that training. So you've decided you want to do orthopedics. Let's specialize. Let's make you better at orthopedics. And, and I think it works. And, and we're, we're mimicking the medical model um, of like what a physician, like what a physician would do to some degree, right? You get out of for them. What's that? Cause it's working for them. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you can, we can, argue, that's not my specialty. I don't even know how to argue that, but. Well, I mean, think about it. Like you have a bunch of depressed people, you have really high suicide rates, you have high drug use rates, you have people whose life satisfaction is not high on a lot of surveys. And then you wonder why like medical costs are so high. And it's like, yeah, because by the time they get through that, they're going, you owe me $250,000 a year to be a family care professional. Or if I'm going to be a surgeon, you owe me $2.2 million a year. What? I thought you were trying to help people. Well, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they don't deserve it. But the reason they deserve it is, is not necessarily all skill-based. It's like we have to pay them that much money because we beat the shit out of them for 10 years. Right? They're basically abused children by the time they come out. Right? That we have to like try to make up for. Right? We have to try to, to give some sort of reward at the end so that people keep going through that process. And then when you get out, a lot of physicians, I feel for them, man, their quality of life is not great. They're always on call. Their hours are miserable. The level of intensity of their job is like here at all times. Like it just doesn't stop. So you want to take physical therapists and throw them into that? No, thank you. But no. Even- even if you throw us into it, like nobody's paying those physical therapists 300,000 a year. They're still making, you know. So abuse us and pay us less. Like, no, thanks, man. Like, I think at the Brook, what was that? That's the biggest problem I see is you don't make any more money, right? You go do this, right? right? So you got maybe make 10 grand a year or something different. But the value, I think, the end value is tough. I think it's going to be interesting the legacy that I leave behind, it, assuming that I keep going on the path that I am. I think obviously, you know, I have a, I don't want to say it, like, I guess a talent for understanding human movement science and like these predictive models of dysfunction and putting together this integrated, or I shouldn't say putting together, evolving the integrated, integrated model of practice. Right. And hopefully I make my contributions there, but I think as big a contribution I'm going to end up making is the Brooke Bush Institute is going to show that there is a whole different model for education, that things do not have to be nearly as abusive and inconvenient and self-sacrificing as they currently are. I think that could end up being, for all of my education in human movement science, the, the model that the, that's been created around the Brooke Bush Institute could be as big an influence. And I hope we see, you know, not that I really hope for competition as a business owner, but I hope we see more education companies like look at us and go, damn, they're doing it. Like it is possible. Like you can charge $19.99 a month and still be a profitable company. Like you can scale. Like we can do these things in really high quality ways. We can make education super convenient. We can be student centered and customer service focused. And it doesn't make education worse. In fact, it makes education a lot better. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a super interesting model to me, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. I think the, the downside to the way our CEUs work, is, you know, it's, okay, you got to do 24 hours in two years. 
but you can get those to use any way you want. So you take a course here and you take a course here and you take a course here. And um, how do you decide what course to take? You know, you take one course and they tell you one thing, they take one course and you tell you the other thing, who's right, who's wrong. And it, it becomes very difficult to, to choose courses and determine your path. Um, sure. And, and, you know, that's where capitalism hopefully will work out and better courses will rise to the top. And, sure. um, you know, we, we totally reinvented the, the recertification thing with our certifications, which I know is not the same thing as CECs, what you're talking about, but, you know, essentially everything you take with us is CECs and those automatically get loaded into your account. So, you know, one of the advantages of staying a member with us is like, you just keep going on the same path. You know, we have hundreds of credits available. So, and it's all one of the, another education point we didn't talk about is, you know, MedBridge, who I have a lot of respect for. One of my critiques of their model, which is why we went in a different direction, is there is no congruency between their courses, right? Like you can have two instructors say totally different things and they don't have any way of controlling that because they have more of like a Pandora model. People write education and then put it up on, on MedBridge, right? It's a platform. It's not a in-house continuing education development company. Um, you know, with us, the congruency so that as you're learning, you're learning the same language, right? So that you get a chance to develop these concepts in your head before being thrown a new vocabulary, before being thrown contradicting ideas. Um, you know, you get a chance to like put it all together. Right. And I think, I think overall, that's the better way to go. I'm not saying contradicting ideas don't have their place. They do, but it's very hard to learn that way when you're getting thrown a bunch of different stuff. Yep. Yeah. It's, I think it's a challenge in the field in general. Um, oh yeah. Even for an experienced practitioner, like it's very easy to just go down one path and just stay there. Right. Become like, I'm never going to take any other courses other than this manual therapy course. And you self-select your, your path. And, and, and in a way, and in a way you might be better off that way. Like I, uh, get really good at you, one thing. Yeah. You might be more effective than trying to piecemeal a bunch of stuff together from a bunch of different things. Right. If like you, for example, I'm a COMT, right. Yeah. Certified orthopedic manual therapist through Maitland. I would rather, you know, I, obviously we use a slightly different model at the Brookbush Institute, but I would rather see somebody start on COMT and go all the way through it than to take no offense to you or me, than to take one COMT workshop, one Brook Bush workshop, one dry needling workshop, one cupping workshop. What? Good luck. You know, if you do education that way, I don't think your outcomes are going to improve at your clinic, right? Because that's what it comes down to. It's like, will your outcomes improve? Now, if you become a really good COMT or you really dive into the Brook Bush Institute stuff, right? where you really understand dry needling through and through, that's where you're going to watch your efficacy start to increase, right? And your outcomes start to get better. And then once you get that mastered, then you can move on to something else and start adding to your, your pie, right? Yeah, I, I tell people that ask me questions like that. You at least have to have a model that you're going to do your assessments and kind of figure out what's going on. You have to have that locked in. And if that, whatever that ends up being, um, whether that's a, you know, a manual therapy, CMT kind of Maitland model or a McKenzie model or SF, you know, an FMS, SFMA kind of, I don't care, but pick something and get very, very good at your assessments. Um, and then you can kind of. We to start talking it. about information science. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I've stumbled on in my attempt to create a comprehensive education program 
is, you know, what does comprehensive mean, right? What does it mean to have all of the techniques that would need to be there? Um, and you start running into these information science problems, which is physical therapists, athletic trainers, chiropractors, what is the decision we're actually trying to make? And so you end up with this fundamental problem of what we're really trying to do is given all the interventions I have, what intervention do I need to select for this person right now based on what, right? It's actually a intervention selection problem. Mm -hmm. And then you go, okay, well, I should base that on assessment. Well, the problem with that is it creates recurrent loops. So if you're doing an assessment that suggests a certain technique and that technique improves that assessment, okay, so you just keep going around in that circle and you don't really remember why you picked the assessment to begin with or whether the technique is effective for the perhaps the um, diagnosis or symptom cluster as a whole, right? You start with these recurrent loops. So then you get into this question of how do you choose your assessments? And that's where you have to, for us, that's where a lot of my brain power goes is what does a predictive model of impairment look like that is going to help us refine our assessment and intervention selection, knowing that that predictive model has to be inductive. Um, it's going to be evidence-based, which means it has to have a, a, a method for aggregating data. In, the, in, in our case, it's aggregating data from original research, right? So, yeah, that, that stuff gets heady, huh? Yeah. It's like machine learning algorithms and, like, you get into, like, Markov chains and... Yeah, so you're, build, you're building that stuff and you're building the, those models. Are you, how much of that is you're creating it versus you're pulling it from research and using other people's, other people's algorithms and clusters and, and clinical predictions? Well, it's all, it's all research driven, right? We don't do our own research. So mm -hmm. um, there's more than enough research out there to, to considerably advance what we had done. And I think, I think that's what we did. I think if you look at, what we're doing, we're actually building on the Yonda models. Okay. And Yonda's like, everybody's like, Yonda's posture. And what I've realized is Yonda's Darwin, right? So Darwin taught us evolution, right? Mm -hmm. Darwin taught us how to think about biology in natural selection terms. He gave us a new methodology for analyzing the world. And what I've realized is in my career is Yonda's postural dysfunction model, upper cross, lower cross, and then pronation distortion. The brilliance wasn't posture. The brilliance was realizing that you could predictively model what was happening around impairment. You don't even have to call it posture. There's all this stupid argument that there's no evidence that posture and pain are correlated. Yes, they are. Start reading research. Like I can't, I don't, it drives me nuts that I can, I can be like, they're like, there's no such thing as research that correlates things. And I can lay down, like, let's say a dozen, because we're in comment boxes on social media half the time, a dozen research studies. And they're like, oh, you're cherry picking. That doesn't matter. Even if I was cherry picking, it doesn't matter. You said there was no research. Here's some research. So there's obviously some research. Um, not to mention, you showed me no research and made this random conclusion and I showed you some, so already I have the more supported position. Like, where are we going with this profession? Anyway, back to the point, you don't have to even call it posture. What he's started 
laying out and where we took the the mantle and kept going, or at least I did with the lumbar pelvic hip complex dysfunction model, the upper body dysfunction model, the lower extremity dysfunction model. Um, and soon we'll have SIJ model and the, the uh, cervical thoracic model. But what we did is realize that what those Yonda models really are is predictive models based on correlated impairments, right? So you start thinking, okay, wait a second. If I can correlate impairments with various dysfunctions, right? So what is correlated with low back pain, right? And we might be able to say, well, an anterior pelvic tilt is weakly correlated. Asymmetrical hip range of motion is strongly correlated. Um, things like an excessive forward lean during gait it might be strongly correlated. A reduction in mid lumbar lordosis, hypermobility of L5-S1 segment. Like we start creating this list of like, oh, wow. Okay, we have all these things that could be correlated with low back pain. All right, cool. How do we assess those things? <laughs> and then once we figure out how to assess them, we can see which one of these correlated impairments is present, and that can drive our intervention selection, which hopefully increases our outcomes. And of course, then we can, you know, hopefully long-term, I hope that me personally, I guess, is the interim step between theoretical model evidence-based model to actual mathematical modeling, right? Where we're able to actually put numbers to this stuff, which will then allow us to put priority numbers on our interventions so that we can actually predict the likelihood of success or choose the techniques within this integrated uh, intervention paradigm, right? That have the highest likelihood of improving this particular person's conditions based on the correlated impairments they have. That's a, that's pretty complicated mathematical stuff. We don't have the data yet, but I'm hoping I can be that interim step that gives like a little squishy model for a computer, right? It's just solid enough that a computer can actually start working out all the math around. It. How was that for nerdy and ranty? Hey, but if, I mean, if you can get some of that stuff together, I mean, that would be huge. I mean, right now, you know, you got clinical prediction models and cluster sets of tests, and but none of it's like, I don't know. There's nothing that's perfect right now. Like you can't, and I don't We're know. Talking, that's perfect, but. I, I, I think that that thinking right now though is, is what is, it's what's failing us. It's probabilities. There is no binary. There's no perfect. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I tried that on somebody and it didn't work. Yeah, that's expected. It's probabilities. Yeah. Well, if I get to 85% effectiveness, I'm kicking ass, right? Like what you're going to say, you're 85% effective bullshit, right? Like if you don't want to talk in probabilities, you should lose your license. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, I am really getting to the point where I'm like at that level where I'm like, okay, if you're just going to throw out anything that's not perfect, you don't understand science. You are not a licensed doctor with research in your background. You might as well be just any belief-driven quack that's out there, right? We have to get to the point where we understand that probabilities drive everything. And what we're trying to do is stack the probabilities in our favor. I know that with the predictive models of dysfunction that we've developed, I am far more likely to hit on the right answer than I was without them, right? Have, have you gone back with the models that you have, have you gone back and, 
and had anybody look at the like what your outcomes are and look at the validity and the statistics on, on the success rates? Like if you no. got that point yet? No, I mean, it would be that that's we're in that intermediate step, right? Like how would we do that? Um, it's not easy to do this stuff. Like right now, like these models are built from, you know, things like, okay, uh, radiograph studies on correlations between radiographs and lumbar spine pain, right? Well, how do you get outcomes from that? Well, you need to do a different study. Right. Right. So we're not at the point where we can do these multivariant, multi-arm studies. We're not pharma, right? Like, you know, it's funny how we, the, we could get into this whole levels of evidence co- conversation and like everybody thinks we should have these, number one, they think meta-analysis are the highest level of evidence. They're not. Meta-analysis are just reviews. They're secondary sources except for one exception. And this is where we get totally mistaught in school. When a physician talks about meta-analysis, generally speaking, they're probably talking about prospective meta-analysis built on pre-planned RCTs. That's that's very different than retrospective analysis, as in I'm going to look backwards and apply whatever I want to this set of studies so that I could manipulate the math how I want. That changes everything. What we have in rehab is retrospective systematic review, retrospective MA. In this case, systematic review, MA, what the Brookbush Institute's doing, textbooks, they're all secondary sources. They're a good place to start, but you cannot put them in the same category as original research data, right? That it, you just can't. Um, it doesn't make any sense. I hate reading systematic reviews anymore because they all just say nothing works. Right. There's no well, 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 let's talk about that for a second. Why is that? Well, part of it's probably just that the, the randomized control trials are probably not all up to snuff, so certain ones get eliminated. Um, and then a part of it is, is probably along the lines of what you're saying. Like You can set the criteria of what studies you include, and you pick what makes it and what doesn't, right? You make your own inclusion-exclusion criteria. So that... That's yeah, so you, you, you hit on a few things. And let me, let me try to, since I've been going back and forth about this particular topic for a while, let me, try to, let me try to nail some of this stuff down, right? So first things first, you have to ask yourself, if you had six RCTs that had a positive effect direction, all right, so they all showed an effect in the same direction and they all had... Um, a p-value of 0.05, something that is acceptable to you. And then you did a systematic review and it didn't refute the null hypothesis. So it came up with null. Which is right, the systematic review or the RCTs? The answer is the RCTs, obviously, right? You just said, like, let's say the effect sizes were two, right? For just random number. Two plus two plus two plus two plus two plus two, and then the systematic review says that equals zero. No, that's not. Or if we're going to talk about averages, let's. What's the average of two, three, one, two, two point five, and one point five? The average of that is two. But if the systematic review says zero, the problem is the systematic review. And you knew that because if you had read one of those RCTs by themselves, you would have been like, "Oh wow, that's really cool." Dry needling is effective for low back pain 
right? And in this study, they, they dry needled, let's say the QL and they dry needled the lumbar erectors and they dry needled the TFO. That's really cool. There's some evidence that dry needling can help low back pain. That's what we know. And then they throw it into a systematic review and you get nothing. And you're like, yes, but what you got was not a contradicting vote. The failure to refute the null literally proves absolutely nothing. This is the second point, right? So you can't look at a systematic review that is different than the randomized control trials and think that the systematic review is automatically right. The second thing you can't do is assume that failure to refute the null is proof of anything because it is not. The null hypothesis is the nothing hypothesis. It is not the opposite hypothesis. It is not uh, proof of a contradicting uh, position. It is no position at all, mm-hmm. right? So you get failure to refute the null. Well, that systematic review is useless. It's not, it's not less if for a retrospective review, assuming that we're talking about our industry. Yeah. If we're talking about a retrospective review and it didn't refute the null, it's useless. Like that's all it is. Next thing, which you kind of hit on, so many of these system, well, two things. So many of these systematic reviews set an arbitrary level of what high quality means. And in doing so, incidentally cherry pick. Right? So maybe there's 350 something studies on a topic. And they set the, the level at blinded randomized control, which is like super rare and not totally possible in manual therapy, right? Like we know blinding in manual therapy is a little like, uh, that's tricky. But they set this arbitrary thing. So there's 300 and some odd studies, and they find six. Well, how representative is that six studies, right? Because you can't just dismiss all other research, right? This gets into levels of evidence. What is levels of evidence about? Levels of evidence is about putting things in order of risk of probable bias, probable error. It is not saying accuracy. It is not saying absolutely errored or absolutely biased. It is absolutely possible to have a biased or flawed or errored RCT and a fine observational study, which would be level three, according to most of these things, right? You can't just discount them like that. If anything, we, uh, the only thing you could do is take a Bayesian approach and weight these different studies based on their risk. But you, for example, maybe we could weight an RCT at 0.85 and weight observational studies at 0.78 and then we could somehow aggregate them that way. Although this, you know, we'd have to use Bayesian methods to then back propagate what the actual level should be. But nonetheless, it's a total fallacy in thinking to think that you can use these six RCTs to wipe the floor of all this other great data. It's just data, right? And then the last point, and this is the one that I see that like is beyond maddening because we're supposed to be smart is often these systematic reviews will ask questions, create null hypotheses that are ridiculous. Is kinesio taping effective? What? Like that, that sentence doesn't make sense. Effective for what? When used, how? For what outcome, right? Like, did you not get tapped? overgeneralization was a bad thing when you were in school? Because I remember learning in research that you can't overgeneralize findings. And now you want to take 
a systematic review that has six RCTs and overgeneralize it to all of kinesio taping. What? Yep. Like, you know, there is a study by a guy named Ioannidis, who's a very well-known person in the statistics community. And he did a study that showed that only 3% of systematic reviews, including meta-analysis, in our fields of medicine, right, allied health, only 3% were any good. Wow. The rest were either horrifically flawed, redundant, or needed serious work. Like that, that whole, and see, this drives what's going on in our industry right now. We have a bunch of jerks playing off the fact that controversial information spreads six times faster on social media than positive information or just data, right? Just random educational information. So they want to say something conspiratorial. So what do they do? They cherry pick a systematic review that failed to refute the null and then use that as proof of an opposing position. And now based on what we just talked about, you can see how ridiculously flawed that whole thing is. You know, and these guys get like kudos for it. Like, I'm just like, oh, where are we going? So we have these conversations in in our group with integrative dry needling and we kind of, you know, dry needling is, by the way, dry needling is a great example. It's so I can't, it's a great example. I can't dry needle. So let's, let's, let's put this out here. I can't dry needle. I'm in New York. It's illegal for a physical therapist to dry needle. I would love to dry needle. I can't dry needle, but I, I essentially have no dog in this fight, right? Whether dry needling works or it doesn't, doesn't matter to me as a professional. And because it's my education company, we're not even gonna have videos of dry needling, right? Like, <laughs> I have to hire somebody else to do the dry needling videos. So I literally don't have a dog in this fight. Dry needling is one of the most well-supported interventions in the body of literature. I was shocked when I was going through our, I was doing like the uh, trigger point and static manual release courses. Mm-hmm. I was shocked at not only the amount of dry needling research, but RCTs in dry needling research are way more common than they are for most other manual interventions and way more common than exercise. It's funny that so many of the anti-dry needlers are pro-exercise when the amount of RCTs on exercise is minuscule compared to dry needling. Right now, I'm not saying exercise is bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying dry needling is not what we need to be pushing against right? Like dry needling is actually super effective, at least from the standpoint of it's at least as supported, if not more supported than any other intervention in our thing. The only other thing that comes close is joint manipulations. Joint manipulations also has a ton of very high quality research. And I think it's because they've been attacked for decades. You, you kind of get that feeling from the, the research when you read all of it. What? I mean, there's a million ways we can go with this, but why do you think it's so popular to attack all of the different things that we do as rehab professionals? Like, people therapy, are assholes. huh? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, because people are assholes. Um, oh. Like, there's nothing left to do. Specific exercise doesn't work. Joint manipulation doesn't work. Dry needling doesn't work. Uh, 
you pick your whatever and you can find somebody that it goes it, it goes back to what i said it's cherry picking systematic reviews and using a failure to refute the null as evidence of a contradicting position and we know that that unto itself is a fallacy on many levels, right? Cherry picking is a bad thing. The null hypothesis isn't proof of anything. Systematic reviews are not the most effective way, right? So we know all that. Why do I, what do I think is motivating it? Yeah. We came up with a hashtag the other day, excuse-driven physical therapy. Forget evidence-based physical therapy. We're now going excuse-driven physical therapy, right? It's not about improving your outcomes. It's about blaming the patient for why you don't suck, right? Like I think... Honestly, man, I hate to put it that way because I am a huge fan of my colleagues. As you know, I have sacrificed a large portion of my life to improving education, right? But yeah, I look at this and I go, okay, there are a bunch of young, mostly arrogant individuals who want an excuse for why they're not getting results with their patients. And also here's the big one. They want a good excuse not to have to learn a skill. At the end of the day, learning manual therapy is hard. Learning dry needling is hard. Like these things take not only a knowledge, but practice, right? Like manual therapy skills. I haven't practiced much. I mean, it's COVID, right? And, you know, I, I kind of went from being full-time CEO and backing down off my practice to not really being able to practice much at all now, right? Because I backed down my practice and now who am I supposed to see? I'm in COVID central, New York City, right? I know... That I'm so sad. I'm sorry. Bad joke. Too soon. Um, but I know that like, even if I go back into practice, like I was talking to you about the integrated manual therapy workshop, it's going to take me time to get my hands back. Yeah. And it's, does that mean I'm like some Jedi with special powers? No, no. It takes time to remember how to palpate and differentiate and apply the right pressure and what I'm feeling for. There's all these little details and they take practice, you know? So I think what we see a lot of is, excuse-driven physical therapy. Why are my outcomes bad? And what excuse can I use not to have to learn to get better? You know, that's, it's complacency. It's, it's so funny to me because when you talk to a manual therapist, the, the first thing they say is something along those lines of like, I got to get my hands, my hand, you know, it took time to develop my touch and feel and all this kind of stuff. And, and then when you talk to somebody who wants to bash manual therapy, they just say that stuff isn't valid and it's not reliable and we can't use it. But it is valid and it is reliable and the research is there. All these people who say research says don't read research. Don't actually look for it. It's on, like, like I told you before, it's, it's on our website. Mm -hmm. We do, um, we do these, these comprehensive reviews. And by the way, we have free to view courses. So people are like, oh, you're just trying to sell courses. No, man. Like I literally have a manual therapy course open to view. So you can start seeing some of that research. And I'm not even saying you have to read what I wrote. The bibliography is there and organized. You can cherry pick the bibliography and pull it apart. That's why I put the bibliography in there and organized the bibliography. Our bibliographies are actually not organized by alphabet, right? Which makes no freaking sense when you want to look back at them, right? They're organized by subtopic. So if you want to go in and say, uh, I want to see what the reliability of assessment is for joint mobilizations, like you can see that little subtopic of five or six articles under lumbar spine and pick it out and go search them yourself. It's right there, right? Like I, again, it's excuse-driven PT. I'm just going to say this and I'm going to say it doesn't exist. 
And then, of course, if Brent gives me some research, what am I going to do? I'm going to accuse him of cherry picking. Right. And he gives me more than one study or if he gives me 100 studies, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to accuse him of data dumping. Right. Like they have an out for everything. And meanwhile, the evidence is right there. Right. Like it's. And what are you what are they, what are they actually saying to us? They're saying, I have no interest in getting better. I have no interest in being a better professional because if they wanted to be a better professional, they'd try shit. Right. I posted something the other day about this excuse driven PT and I, I was pretty harsh. Um, I think it said something to the effect of excuse driven PT says, does general strengthening for everything. General strengthening doesn't work. So he adds pain science education outcomes still suck. So he blames it on psychosocial issues. Right. Like that's, that's where all physical therapy has gone. Really? Right? Like this is, it's, it's a very easy thing to, to look at. So what did I suggest that everybody did? Well, ideally you'd go back to that conversation, conversation we had about information theory, right? Like you can tell when you talk to me that I'm at least at the very least, whether I'm biased or not, I'm at least trying, I'm trying to be accurate. I'm trying to be non-biased. I'm trying to use evidence. I'm trying to use information science to come up with a better systematic approach. Right. So ideally, we would have this evidence based, systematic, integrated, outcome driven, patient centered approach. That would be ideal. But what's better than excuse driven PT, which is I did some shit and then made excuses for why it didn't work, would be hey, do us a favor, just pick one assessment and start experimenting with shit to try to modulate that outcome. That first step would be a million times better than just looking for excuses, right? It might be hip range of motion. I'm going to try to improve hip internal rotation for this individual. Great. I honestly don't care what you try. That is still, and I might know flat out from experience and from education and from all the research I've read that what you're about to try is wrong and it's not going to work. But you know what? I would rather you tried it, learned it, and tried something else than for you to feel dismissed because I told you anything. Right? Just try some stuff. Yeah. You know? That test I mean, kind of model, at least it gives you a starting point. Um, and, and I'm circling back to something you said earlier, but I went to, uh, last year, I went to a, a conference put on by the Cleveland Clinic, and it was about medications and neurology and different things. But one of the topics was migraine. And and I treat a lot of people with migraine, so I really wanted to see what the docs were doing for migraine. And what I thought was really interesting is, you know, the first line of defense was they tried an abortive medication and Imitrex or something like that. And that was 75% effective, you know, 75% of the time, that's what worked. And then when that didn't work, that subgroup went to, I don't remember the next one, but it was Botox. And that was going to work 50% of the time. And then when that didn't work, we're going to do a, something to do with CGRP. Um, why don't we see that in physical therapy? Like, why don't we say, here's the, you know, here's the entry level of somebody walks in with plantar fasciitis. Here's the entry level of things you should be looking at. And here's next, here's next, here's, you know. And, and Cause we're not as sophisticated as physicians. We're a new practice, uh, relatively speaking. We don't have the dollars and the research to go into it. You know, machine learn. some of what you're talking about is very similar to some of the machine learning models. And I think machine learning is teaching us a lot about logic as humans, right? Because when you put a program into a computer, if your logic is flawed, it just crashes. 
there's no there's no rationalizing i'm not following you there what do you mean so with a with a, a computer a computer can only stand understand exactly what you told it mm-hmm. right so unlike a human who can rationalize why an answer is different two plus two is five. Oh well that must be because you know like my twos were really 2.5s or something weird like we come up with all these weird like we do these mental gymnastics. You put two plus two equals five into a computer. It knows two plus two equals five. And every time you put in two plus two, it's going to give you five back. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I think when these machine learning models are being applied to create these algorithms for things like uh, radiology technology, where it can be read by a computer, we learn a lot about our own logic too. Right. And have continued to learn by research in that field about logic right? About how we get to more and more accurate answers because everything's data-driven and outcome-driven and you kind of have to put it into a computer the right way. Um, Why don't we see that in, in our field? Like I said, I think the money's not there. The, the, um, the sophistication isn't there yet. Um, And I think all the stuff that I just talked about does go counter to human intuition, which is to turn everything into this binary yes or no. We kind of had that argument in the beginning or argument, debate, whatever, in the very beginning of like, well, it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's probabilities. It's not binary. It's percentages. Um, Once our profession as a whole gets used to the fact that like, okay, for example, low back pain, you know, maybe we need to look at gross lumbar mobility, SIJ, um, SIJ stiffness and hip mobility. And by the way, Research also shows an effective method for assessing SIJ emotion. Another one of those stupid myths out there about research. Um, SIJ stiffness, I should say, not not position, but SIJ stiffness. You can, there's a good assessment cluster out there. Um, okay, so we, but let's say we take those three things, and we know that most of the time those are going to be where we need to do our interventions for low back pain. Well, what's next if that doesn't work? I'm just saying from experience, maybe you need to look at ankle mobility, right? Because lower extremity dysfunction can definitely play a role in lumbar spine pain. So that would be your next 25%. Well, what happens if that doesn't work? Okay, then we need to keep going up the chain. Maybe it's thoracic spine mobility or it's upper body dysfunction or it's cervical dysfunction, right? Um, All of these things could, could be there. Now, I think when you start with movement assessment, you kind of take some shortcuts to get there already. Right, like if I do an overhead squat assessment, and for somebody with low back pain, I note down all my signs that I see. Let's say arms fall forward, excessive forward lean, knees bow in, feet turn out. Okay, maybe asymmetrical weight shift. I put them on a heel rise, and their asymmetrical weight shift goes away, and so does their low back pain during squatting. Well, what does a heel rise do? It takes ankle out of the assessment. So where is my primary driver for this person's symptom cluster? The ankle. And since the asymmetrical weight shift went away, I would be willing to bet it's one ankle, right? So I can kind of shortcut all that and get there in a little bit faster way. The FMS works the very similar way, right? NASM's overhead squat assessment works the same similar way. Is like, there's a reason why these movement assessments are the way to go. I got a client we did that with last night. I'm going to send this uh, clip to him as soon as we get off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how much low back pain I've actually solved with ankle mobility. And I, I think it seems really counterintuitive to these people who are trying to treat based on diagnosis, number one, which is a 
is a logical fallacy unto itself, or they like want to go down to this pain science, you know, rabbit hole of like, it's in people's heads. And it's like, yeah, that's it. Well, but, but what people need is an effective intervention and you're not helping them get there. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to argue that there's not an emotional component to pain. Um, but sure. But we can't treat that, that process. You know? yeah, we're not, we're not psychotherapists. Right. Right. right? I'm not, the, and and if you actually read pain science, which most again, most pain science zealots have not read pain science information. That's a guarantee. If you read like Butler's book, The Sensitive Nervous System, which is a great text, it is very clear that the psychosocial stuff amplifies pain. It right. doesn't cause it. Those are two different things. If stress caused pain, it would be systemic. Right? You can't explain to me how stress and one person is going to cause cervical pain and another person lumbar pain and that's the only place the pain is what it would be all over their body if it was systemic no what's happening is they have some sort of dysfunction at their cervical spine some sort of dysfunction at their 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 lumbar spine that's setting off nociception and all of those psychosocial issues all of those stressors as that nociception comes in are perceived at as threat level right? We've heard this term of like, it's all about threats. Well, when you're really stressed out, little things seem like much bigger threats, right? So the way to treat that isn't necessarily to go after the stress though, right? You can talk to people about it, but it's kind of funny that the pain science zealots are usually also the evidence-based pricks. It's just ironic because if you look at pain science education or patient education in RCTs, it is one of the least effective interventions that we have. It literally performs worse than everything. It's worse than manual therapy. It's worse than exercise. It's worse than dry needling. I mean, there is almost nothing it is more effective than. It is only effective as an adjunct therapy when added to other effective physical interventions. It's, it's kind of a joke. It's a joke that these people are coming after companies like ours that are teaching like just good, good basic stuff. I think it's a huge value as an adjunct. Um, like you got It's a little value as an adjunct. Isn't a great word, but it's it's worth having on board in certain scenarios. Sure, if it's the sure. right scenario to use it. But uh, you know, we had a PT when I was in a different clinic. We had a PT that was that kind of went way down the pain science rabbit hole, and like everything became a pain science case. Like yeah. the, the one I remember it was an eighteen-year-old. 18-year-old kid who was a senior in high school, I think, that hurt his back deadlifting and we're doing pain science education. I'm like, just do some UPAs and give this guy some press-ups and let's go home. Um, or, yeah, some core strengthening, do a movement assessment. Um, yeah, right. Get me the, yeah, I mean, but... but I mean, in that particular instance, what, what support do you have for centralization? He's 18 with no previous history of injury. It happened to yeah. You know, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it was like, okay, come on. So you just can't apply, you gotta, again, you gotta figure out when to apply which, which, uh, which right approach, but that's a whole different beast of a conversation. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, the pain science education that my theory is this, you know what patients really want? And this goes back to like, uh, Prochesca and Clemente and, and Ryan, uh, Ryan and Dietschy, like the, the motivational models, like what they really want is autonomy. They want to feel in control of their situation. Yeah. You know what, would, what works better than pain science education most of the time? Not that I'm saying you can't add pain science education, but what works better most of the time 
a home exercise program. Give them a few techniques that they can do that actually modify their pain in real time. And you will be surprised at how fast people get better and magically address all of those psychosocial issues because all of a sudden their confidence comes back. They realize they're going to get out of this. They realize it's temporary. They realize there's something not only that can be done, but that they can do to get themselves out of it. Um, it's not that I'm anti-pain science education, because honestly, pain science education explains a lot of the reason why addressing ankle mobility can fix low back pain. Fixed. Um, you know, uh, it's just the way it's being pushed out there on social media right now. You're just like, you guys got to stop. Like, this is, number one, you just sound, to anybody who knows the research, you sound ignorant. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that as far as giving that patient control. Because I feel like it, when people attack manual therapy, the first thing, not the first thing, but one of the things they like to do is say that you, you make the patient dependent on you to fix them. And that's never my intention because it, it honestly, if I have a patient says, hey, I need you to fix me, I, I know I'm screwed, right? Like this is not going to go as well as if they're like, okay, what do I need to do to, to get this? You know, how do I help myself kind of a thing? Well, and the research is pretty clear on this point too, right? Like manual therapy is more effective than exercise interventions mm -hmm. when looked at the research overall during the early phases, yes. right? And we know that manual therapy and exercise together is always more, not always, but generally speaking from a research perspective, the combination of manual therapy and exercise has in, in almost all studies has demonstrated more effectiveness than either one alone. You would hope that all of us are bright enough, supportive enough, caring enough that we're going to start with manual therapy to get that boost, right? You get that little manual therapy boost for your patient to like give them some momentum because you can do techniques really fast. You don't have a learning curve to teach somebody how to release their own TFL is going to take a lot more time than you releasing their TFL. I might be able to get through 20, 25, 30 techniques inside of a, a single session. Your patient can't do that initially, but you start there and then your immediate goal should be self-management, right? Like we're trying to replace manual stuff with an exercise that'll do something similar if we get a good outcome, right? Hopefully we're doing assess, you know, intervention, assess, assess, intervention, assess, assess, intervention, assess. So we're kind of keeping track on what's working and what's not. But, you know, the, the whole idea is self-management. Like, you know, again, these, this idea that client dependence. It's like the same argument about catastrophes. Oh, our words are catastrophizing things for patients and we're treating people broken. Yo, bro, don't assume that the way I talk to another professional is the way I talk to a patient. Just because I'm calling this postural dysfunction, because that's what it's been called for the last 50 years, doesn't mean I go in and tell my patient that they're broken. Just because I'm doing manual therapy doesn't mean I'm anti-exercise. Just because I'm doing manual therapy doesn't mean I'm anti-home exercise program. And I, I find the arguments against me personally on that stuff pretty hilarious because I'm like, I started as the corrective exercise guy. The first half of my career was as a personal trainer. Who do you think you're talking to? Yeah, but it, I mean, it's, it's all the time. I mean, you see that stuff constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just is frustrating, man. I mean... I guess I, also, I don't want to even circle back to this, but you know, somebody's looking at like, well, 
dry needling, we, I see a lot of dry needling literature. Dry needling is only effective in the short term. It doesn't have an outcome at a year later. Like, no kidding. Like, <laughs> I mean. You're still getting dry needling, dry needled a year later. Um, and well, and let me give you the big problem with that one, which I see all the time too. And I think we've bashed this myth pretty good actually at the Brookbush Institute. This idea that short-term effects don't matter. Why? Because patients want to be in pain longer, right? Like when I see patients, they want to be out of pain now, not six weeks from now. So if I can get, even if somebody's outcomes are the same in six weeks of doing something and not doing something, but at one week, they'd be a lot better if they saw me giving them five more weeks of less pain. That's a reasonable goal for a lot of people, depending on how much pain we're talking about. Like some people can't go to work, they're in so much pain, or they're athletes whose livelihood depends on their physical well being. You get them out on the court two weeks earlier, that's a huge difference. And with the dry, by the way, but dry needling, manual therapy, when you integrate stuff, the long term outcomes are better. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. And, and, and just to add on to that point of what you just said, if short-term outcomes, it might change their course of, of medical care. Like if I see somebody direct access for their low back pain and they're not better in two visits in my world, they're going to their doctor, they're getting an x-ray, they're getting pain medications, they're getting an injection, they're getting... Sure. Surgeries. I change their symptoms in those first two visits and now they're on a course of manual therapy and exercise and, and they avoid all that, you know. Or a low back surgery or whatever, right? Like Wherever that, wherever that yeah. cycle takes them, right? Because you just you just change the course of their their whole medical plan of care of what they're going to end up doing not to mention a lot of these long-term studies don't have self-selection bias of activity so you find out at 12 months somebody has uh based on the, the mcgill low back questionnaire right like they they had the same amount of low back pain as somebody who didn't have physical therapy but you come to find out that the reason that's true is because they also stopped running which they had been doing for two decades and really loved Meanwhile, if they would have had physical therapy, maybe they'd still be running. Yep. You know, like, like the, <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't block enough time for this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I mean, these are just the fights I have on social media all the time. Which, I mean, obviously, the the online education company is very social media marketing driven uh, from a business perspective. You know, and and at a certain point, I like having these arguments. I, I you know, I'm an educator. I expect them. I think the I think the two things that have bothered me the most are probably the arrogance, right? I think this, the, the young, especially the younger generation, I'm sorry to pick on you guys. The idea that you can dismiss the lifetime's work of a professional who came before you is horrifically arrogant. Like if somebody came in and did that, they'd be fired from the Brooke Bush Institute. You think you're better than Leon Shaitao. You think you're better than Yonda. You think you're better than Sarnan. You think you're better than, you know, any one of these individuals. You're out. Well, Yonda's not right. Yonda set us on a path. And his models may not be as accurate as the ones we have now, but without him, it wouldn't exist. Well, Bobath, blah, blah, blah. Where do you think we would be without these people? Yeah. Right, like you like to say, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like somebody stepped up, and these guys want to knock down the giants and act like they're the first intelligent generation. You're not, right? right? There's literally people who've been doing this for sixty years before you got here. Research for sixty years. You haven't even been practicing for six. Shut up, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, 
Jesus. Um, I would say that that's a little frustrating. I would say the other thing is how entrenched some of these individuals are. I mean, there's some individuals out there who are professionals my age or older, right? I think I'm a little older than you. I've been doing this a little while. I've been educating for 15 years, right? Um, there's some people who are my age and older that should be ashamed of what they're putting out. They're definitely using the social media controversy engine to try to create a career for themselves and posting a lot of false information. And I'm not going to name any names right now, although I have a feeling at some point I'm going to come to head to head with a few of these individuals. But like, if you guys, those of you watching this, if somebody's waving around a single systematic review, be skeptical. If somebody's using the failure to refute the null as proof of anything, be really skeptical, right? Like this is, that's not science. You know, somebody wants to dismiss, but never gives you an alternative approach, block them. That's not helping practice any, right? Like I think, I think some of these points, like you could, I, I hope that when people watch me, whether they think I'm biased or not, they can tell that I want to help. They can tell that I'm trying to be accurate. They can tell that there's something other than my opinions. Guru Brooke Bush, not a guru, hashtag not a guru. Um, I hope that people can tell like there's something, I'm, there, there's something else, right? It's not about opinions. There, there is a science here and, and there's a lot of stuff we have to be proud of. I don't think physical therapy has ever been in better shape than it is now. We are definitely more effective than we've ever been. Like that's undoubted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting that you finished with that. And I think this is, it's probably a great way to kind of wrap things up as far as that, that lens of skepticism and analyzing it. And we've just met and uh, I can definitely, I, I'm, I'm excited by your passion in, in the research and literature and just, you know, you can just feel that, that, you know, you've been, you've been in the trenches for a while and, and it's, it's great to hear. Yeah. It's great to hear. Um, and, and I, I kind of love the way, the way you've taken that. And, I'm interested to see where our, our, you know, profession does end up in 10 years. I think there's a lot going against us. We don't have, you know, big pharma isn't paying for our research. Um, it doesn't, there's not a lot of profitability in home exercise programs. Um, you know, and it's tough. And, and we'll figure out the model. And, it, and it's interesting because, um, and again, maybe it's my bias, right? But, you know, I've built my, you know, relatively young career on doing a lot of manual therapy. And it's like, you're just seeing this huge diverge in our profession. Uh, it's it, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we end up in, in five to 10 years. I've already started to see some, some of it turn around. Like people are already starting to go, you know, these pain side zealots, they've taken it too far. Um, there's I, been a couple of people. Huh? Like I met, a, I met somebody that, that came from a physical therapy school where they literally told them manual therapy wasn't effective. So he never learned any manual therapy. And I'm like, cool, but come hang out with me for a day and watch it change some things. You know, like. There was actually a, there was a comic strip like four years ago that came out that I thought was so on point, right? When this stuff really blew up and it had this poor woman. It's now it was a cartoon. It's not as gory as it sounds, but this woman with a walker had just gotten hit up by a bus and was lying behind the wheels of the bus. And there was a little physical therapist that said, hey, all that pain is in your head. <laughs> and the title of the comic was, I think we've taken this too far, right? Like, you know, it's, 
it, it, that's kind of where we're at at this point. I think it'll come back around. I mean, I can tell you this, like all of these trolls, these contrarians who just, they're nihilists, right? We, we talked about this, nothing works. It's nihilism, right? These nihilists, I've watched several disappear over my career. These people who are trolling me now, there's some effing such and such in the UK who slanders us all the time. Um, he's not going to be here in 10 years. Nobody's going to care. Because after a while, like people are like, okay, so you're against everything. Got it. How am I supposed to treat? Well, you shouldn't do this. Yeah, I know. But what should I do? Well, general strengthening. Yeah, I tried that. It didn't work. Now what? Especially when eventually they disappear. Right? Um, Most of the people I see are already doing general strengthening, right? Right. If that was going to work, they wouldn't. Um, if general strengthening worked for everything, then why would we need anything other than personal trainers? Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody in the gym ever get hurt? It, like, it, it doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> I'm sure it's, I'm sure some degree of it is shiny object syndrome. Like that's the new, it was the new thing, right? So people jumped on it and it has a place, but it, it's, I, I think it'll. I think it's, I think it's controversy and excuse driven PT. That's, that's my bet. That's what, yeah. If we were betting on why this is happening. I'm going back to that bit. I know that's pretty, uh, pretty dark, I guess, of me to say. But like, yeah, I think I think it's complacency driven. I think it's excuse driven. Um, it's pretty bad. The world's a complicated place right now. So it's a crazy, crazy time. Well, hey, Brent, man, that was that was a lot of fun. We had this really cool outline that I don't know what we. I don't know if we hit. Any I know we went off on rants, and it was it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. I'd, I'd enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I'd love to do it again sometime. Uh, where can people? Uh, where can people find out more about you? And, and obviously we'll put some links in the show notes and stuff. Like that. So brookbushinstitute.com is the online platform, right? But we do pump a ton of great content out on social media. For us, social media is like, okay, how do we fit education into Instagram? And how do we fit education into Facebook? So, you know, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, you know, so any of those were there, the social media stuff. Uh, it's at Brookbush Institute, or you might, I think on Facebook, it's actually still my personal author page from way back in the day, Dr. Brent Brookbush, but um, you guys can follow us there. We do have live workshops. There's Zoom live workshops straight to your living room right now. So you can be coronavirus safe if you're looking for that live education. I will be very interested to hear how the dry needling live workshops go because we're thinking about having to do a manual therapy workshop via Zoom. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's great, but I don't know what other option we have. Yeah, we've been hosting some courses. Is it good? It's, it's, okay. it's been going well. Um, we're we're kind of people people peeping keeping people in really small groups. People peeping, I like that. Uh, we're trapping them in the building. No, uh, we're kind of we're trying to like semi isolate within the larger group. Um, you know, and uh, it's in my mind, it's no different than the way we're treating patients. Right, we're masks and, and working one sure. on. It's sure, 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 sure. Kind of the same world we're all living in right now. So uh, sure, yeah. So cool. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Um, Look forward to it and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you for enjoying the Fit for Tomorrow podcast. Hope you're able to pick up a few things to help you live and move better. We'd really appreciate a like, share, review, or follow in order to help us continue to grow this podcast and help more people like you looking to feel and move better as active adults. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next episode.